0: Amen. Thank you, Johnny. Well, it is just such a joy to be with you guys. been hearing about your community for, what, two years now, something like that, through these guys and so many others. You have a beautiful reputation among my friends, and I love to just worship with you. I wish I could put you all on a plane and take you all home and just have you sing every Sunday morning, and Joanne, wherever she was, that was just beautiful. What an authority you have, and it was amazing. So I'm guessing. So if you want to move to Portland, I'd be happy to empty out your church and have you <laughs> sing back home with me. But, and, but really, honestly, I'm not here for you. As much as I love to be, I'm here for these two. And I just love so much love and respect for both of you. And Johnny, you have been such a dear friend to me. Great ache of my heart that there's an ocean and a continent between us. Um, but thanks to Steve Jobs, we have FaceTime. And so <laughs> we'll settle for that. But it is such an honor. You know, again, my working theory, and I might be wrong, but I don't think so on this one, is that the life and the future, both of the church, and I think of society as a whole, all rises and falls on spiritual leadership. And we're living at a cultural moment, at least in my nation, but I think around the world, where there is a dearth of spiritual leadership and um, you guys have that and paul to his letter to the church in ephesians chapter 4 has a beautiful metaphor um, you know an ancient about how christ gave gifts to men and it's all playing off in the ancient near east when a king was victorious in battle he would then expect the people that he set free to give him gifts as a reward for his victory but christ um, does 180 on that and instead after his victory he gives gifts But it's really interesting, then the gifts um, are actually laid out and it's apostle, evangelist, prophet, pastor, and teacher. Meaning Christ's gift to the church to grow us into maturity, our spiritual leaders. And you too are that. You're a gift to this city. You're a gift to this community. You guys are mothers and fathers. You're not even that old yet, although you have more children than I even know how to count. But, um, But you are, but that's even like a prophetic part of your life. You are a mother and a father. And, uh, and you nurture and you empower in so many views. That's what mothers and fathers do. They nurture and they empower. And we just honor you guys and it's such a joy to be with you. And that doesn't count for my 40 minutes. Nothing. The clock starts now. I'm from America. None of this 30-minute sermon nonsense. All right. Um, Matthew chapter, I'm just kidding, kind of kidding. Matthew, Matthew chapter 11, if you have a Bible, um, I have something just stirring in my heart that I want to pass on to you. You know, I got out of bed this morning because I wanted something. Uh, I wanted to sit in the quiet and pray a little bit before all the noise of the day, just over some high quality third wave British hotel instant coffee. And um, I I wanted to be with Johnny and Amy, and I wanted to be with you, and I wanted to get on a run first off along the canal, which was great. And I had all sorts of desires that were pregnant in my heart from the moment I opened my eyes. And uh, those desires are what got me out of bed after jet lag and a long tiring week. They, they literally are what got me up and into the day. Desire is a great motivator. The way that God built the human soul, desire is essentially our engine. It is the energy source, so to speak, that drives us out into the world. But if at any point we are no longer at the steering wheel and, and, and instead desire is driving us, at that point we're in trouble. Because when you take a closer look at the dynamics of desire, you realize really fast that desire is one of those things that is never, ever satisfied. As far back as 1000 B.C., the Koalath of Ecclesiastes said, the eye is not satisfied with seeing. A more recent poet just said, I can't get no satisfaction. (laughs) Same exact idea. Thomas Aquinas, you may or may not be familiar with, don't worry about it if not, he's a towering intellectual of the 13th century whose mind really gave birth to much of Western civilization. As we know it, once as a philosopher asked the question, what would it take to satisfy human desire? What would it take for us to actually feel, ha, my life is enough, I'm satisfied? You know what his answer was? Everything. We would have to, that was his answer, everything. We would have to experience everything and everybody and be experienced by everything and everybody in order to feel satisfied. We would have to have a stamp on our passport for every single country in the world, visit every exotic locale, have every meal, drink every coffee, make love to every human being on the planet, have every experience, accomplish everything, accumulate every possession we could ever... We would have to have it all, but of course, we can't. There's this pesky little thing called time. We all live for just a few decades and we're done, and money tends to be a problem for just a few of us as well. We can't. Carl Rayner, who was one of the leading Catholic theologians of the last century, once said this, and it's a little bit of a heady line, but I love it. In the torment of the insufficiency of everything attainable, we learn that ultimately in this world there is no finished symphony. For those of us a little bit more lowbrow, There is no song that ends all the way, right? So just imagine if you were sitting through a symphony, it was beautiful, and there's just a rich depth in your heart, and then all of a sudden it was cut off right before the ending note, no tonic. Or you're at the end of an Adele song or whatever you're into. I don't know, I just stereotyped your entire island right there. (laughs) Right, and it's just all the crescendo, and it's beautiful, and you're there, and then it, that feeling... That feeling right there is life this side of resurrection. We live with this angst at an inner level of, I'm almost there. It's it's not enough, but it's almost enough. I'm just almost at rest. It's the unfinished symphony. What all of these bright minds are tapping into is the reality that desire is infinite, but we're not. Human beings are not infinite. And because we are finite, the result is a restlessness at simmer underneath the surface of our heart. We all live, some of us more than other, based on personality and all of that stage of life, but we all live with chronically unsatisfied desires. The question becomes, what do we do then with all of this pent-up, unsatisfied desire that we all have with all of this restlessness? What the way of Jesus would say to that is human desire is infinite because we were made to live with God forever in his world, and nothing else will ever satisfy our ache. So our only hope is not to satisfy our desire, that's a fool's errand, but rather to put our desire back in its proper place with God as its aim. One of the most famous lines from the way of Jesus post the New Testament is from Augustine, who was another 4th century mind, actually from Africa, but who gave birth to much of Western civilization. In his book, Confessions, writing as the Roman Empire was falling into chaos, he once said this, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds rest in you. One of the most famous lines of the way of Jesus. More recently, Dallas Willard, who was a Christian philosopher who died just a few years ago, said this desire is infinite, partly because we were made by God, made for God, made to need God, made to run on God. We can be satisfied only by the one who is infinite, eternal, and able to supply all our needs. We are only at home in God. When we fall away from God, the desire for the infinite remains but it's displaced upon things that will certainly lead to destruction. The default condition of the human species, post-Eden at least, is not atheism but idolatry. It's not to reject God but rather to aim our desire not at the one true God but at a career or marriage or family or sexuality or a new toy or travel or beauty or whatever it is for you. It's different for every one of us here. But ultimately, nothing in this life, and we say this so much in the church, it's cliche, but it's true. Other than God, nothing can satisfy our desire. But until we accept that, we live with this chronic state of restlessness, or worse, anger, Angst, anxiety, disillusionment, depression, just this, all of which leads us to a life of hurry and busyness and overload and materialism, a life of more, more, I need more, I need more, I need more, which in turn is just, it's just fuel on the fire. It just makes us even more restless. Ronald Ruhlheiser, an author I love, uses the analogy of body temperature. A little, bit, um, a little amount of restlessness is actually really healthy to like, give you desire, to like you're not just apathetic, to get you going. But if it rises to a certain level in your heart, it's unhealthy, and if it rises past that, it's lethal and it will kill you. And then to make a bad problem worse, it's not just that we're human beings in this side of Eden we have this like, innate restlessness. It is then exacerbated by our cultural moment of digital marketing from a society that's built around accomplishment and accumulation. I mean, they say, the stat that I hear on a regular basis is that we see upwards of 4,000 ads a day. I just think about what that is doing to like your brain. You're like literally how that is wired into your nervous system. 4,000 times a day. Every single ad is designed to stoke the fire of desire in your belly. Buy this, do this, drink this, eat this, wear this, go here, do like all of it, Design, be this, to be more, it's all about more. Social media just takes this problem to a whole new level as we live under this barrage of images, not just from the marketing departments of whatever company, but from the rich or the famous, and even from just our friends and our family who curate the best moments of their life. Um, all normally with good intent, but it ends up often for many of us playing to the core sin of the human condition, that of envy. It goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden where, ah, oh, it's, it's to covet not just a thing, but to covet another person's life. Like this core aspect. But advertising is literally an attempt to fan into flames and to monetize our restlessness this side of the fall. All that to say, when our innate human restlessness comes into contact with the digital age and a culture of accomplishment and accumulation, the result is a society-wide epidemic of emotional unhealth and spiritual death. Psychologists are now diagnosing people with hurry sickness, which psychology today defines as a behavior pattern characterized by continual rushing and anxiousness, They are calling this a sickness, as in it is a Western disease for the middle class and up. The phrase hurry sickness was coined by Meyer Friedman, the cardiologist famous. He was the first doctor to connect the dots between chronic heart stress. I'm sorry, between chronic stress and heart disease. He defined hurry sickness as, quote, a continuous struggle, an unremitting attempt to accomplish or achieve more and more things or participate in more or more events in less and less time. He named three um, symptoms of hurry sickness. One, at a stoplight, you get into the shortest lane. Two, Two, at the market, you look for the shortest line and you make sure you get in that one. And third, you multitask to the point that you forget one of the tasks. Not to play armchair psychologist, but I'm pretty sure you all have hurry sickness. Every one of you in the room. But something about the late modern Western world that we live in, whether it's in Nottingham or Portland or wherever, something, it, there's a spiritual formation to it that, that is turning the inside of our souls into this default condition of hurry and busyness and stress and anxiety and restlessness that is toxic to our life. My friend A.J. Swoboda, in his newest book, Subversive Sabbath, writes this, Our time-saving devices, technological conveniences, and cheap mobility have seemingly made life much easier and interconnected. As a result, we have more information at our fingertips than anyone in history. Yet with all this progress, we are ominously dissatisfied In bowing at these sacred altars of hyperactivity, progress, and technological compulsivity, our souls increasingly pant for meaning and value and truth as they wither away, exhausted, frazzled, displeased, ever on edge. The result is a hollow culture that, in Paul's words, is ever learning but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Our bodies wear ragged. Our spirits thirst. We have an inability to simply sit still and be. As we drown ourselves in 24-7 living, we seem to be able to do anything but quench our true thirst for the life of God. We have become perhaps the most emotionally exhausted, psychologically overworked, spiritually malnourished people in history. Welcome to church this morning. Just here (laughs) from the other side of the world to encourage you. No, seriously, I into this insane world that we all live in now, man, I have good news for you. I have gospel of Jesus for you. Into this world, this real, actual world, Jesus comes with an invitation to rest for your soul. Let's read that one more time, the end of chapter 11, verse 28. Come to me, this is Jesus' open invite to all, all you who are weary, anybody? Burdened, anyone? And I will give you rest. I will give you rest, not just sleep. You can get that from a pill. Rest, something deeper. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest, not just for your bodies, but for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I love Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of this. You may or may not know this. Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. How great is that line? I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. However you translate Jesus' invitation, it's clear that his way is grounded in rest. I mean, think about it. If you're Jesus, and like even at a selfish level, not that Jesus is selfish. This is a foolish thought experiment. But Jesus is not glorified by unhealthy, exhausted people. Um, Johnny and I have a friend named, a mutual friend named John Tyson that we were just with. And I love this imagery, it's from him, he's out of New York. If you imagine your soul almost as like a power bar on your phone, and 100% is like rest all the way up, it's what Jesus called life to the full. I mean, you are just full, not only of energy, but of life and joy and health and happiness and love and just so happy to wake up in the morning and be alive, right? And 0% is you die, you're dead, somewhere in between. We usually don't rest until we're down to 10% or whatever, until we're exhausted, until we have to. And then when we do rest, we rarely rest for very long or very well or very deep. We often entertain ourselves more than we actually rest. And so we don't actually get all the way back to full. We just get solvent again, just enough to we're like, all right, I can show up for work again Monday morning. Okay, I can just get through the end of the day or whatever it is. What do we lose in that extra kind of 20, 30%? We lose life to the full. We lose love. Tired people are not loving people. They're grouchy and sharp and impatient and bitter and not present to you. Can't be tired and be full of love. We lose joy. Tired people are rarely like really deep and full of joy. How are you? So good. Like, people don't say that when they have jet lag, like me this morning, or whatever it is, right? We lose peace. We lose wisdom. We lose our prophetic edge. We lose our sense of vision. The best stuff all comes into our heart when we're at 90% plus. My point is that without rest and lots of it, we simply can't live the way of Jesus, much less become the kind of people that Jesus has in his mind. rest is essential to our discipleship. If you want to apprentice under Jesus, you have to adopt a lifestyle with a lot of rest in it. If you don't believe me, read the four gospels. Jesus is sleeping and has to get woken up half of the time, (laughs) right? You're like, but he prayed all through the night. Yeah, and then he slept for days after... Whatever it was. No, I mean, seriously, in, like, we talk a little about spiritual warfare and how hard it is to plant a church and lead into a city. You realize that rest is a weapon. Wep- rest, it's really hard to tempt people that are well-rested and full of the presence and joy of God. Right? When you're tired, you are easy prey for the enemy, easy prey for your own flesh, easy prey for this city just to suck you right into its narratives. When you're rested... When you're at your best, you're practically impregnable. Not really, but there's an imperviousness to temptation because you know who you are and you have life in God. And more than that, you're full of love. Jesus said the greatest commandment in all of the library of Scripture is to love God of all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our neighbor as ourselves. And in my experience, and this could just be me because I'm an introvert with three kids or whatever, but 80, in my experience, 80% of love, loving well is simply being emotionally healthy and simply awake, right? When I, like, I pray and I fast and I get up early and I try really hard to love, eh. But when I'm well-rested, I find that the love of Jesus just comes out of me to my children, my wife, and those closest to me. My point is when we rest, when we live into Jesus' way that is grounded in this bedrock of rest, we come to our best. So all that to say, is there a practice from the life and teachings of Jesus, to work against this cancerous restlessness, so to speak, of our condition and our culture, and to come to this rest for our soul. And the answer is a resounding yes, um, but at the top of the list is Jesus' practice of Sabbath. Notice that in your Bible, if it's still open, um, if you know anything about the New Testament, it was written in Greek, and the chapters and all the numbers and the subheadings, none of that's there in the original Greek. It's not bad. It's there to help you and I navigate it so I can and say, turn in your Bibles to whatever. And so we don't get lost, but none of it's there. In the original Greek, we go right from that line, my yoke is easy, my burden is light, to this line. At that time, meaning as Jesus was saying in this, come to me, rest for your soul, he went through the cornfields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some ears of corn and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, look, your disciples are doing what's unlawful on the Sabbath. There's a whole backstory here. He answer- and they're not breaking the laws of the Torah, by the way, but of an oral tradition that was well-known in Jesus' day. He answered, Haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry, injured the house of God? He and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests? Or haven't you read in the Torah that, that priests on Sabbath duty in the temple desecrate the Sabbath and yet are innocent? And he says, this is all kind of insider knowledge for a first-century Jew. I tell you that something greater than the temple is here Whoa, that's top 10 things I've never said about myself, you know? <laughs> Hi, I tell you, that's something that Jesus is talking about himself. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man, Jesus' name for himself, is Lord of the Sabbath. Now, that's my kind of nickname. Like, <laughs> I would like to be called Lord of the Sabbath. That's, I'd like, he's master of rest. Ah, what a crazy line. Jesus is master of rest. Verse nine, "'Going from that place, "'he went into their synagogue, "'and a man with a shriveled hand was there "'looking for a reason to bring charges against Jesus. "'They asked him, "'Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath?' "'He said to them, "'If any of you has a sheep "'and it falls into the pit on the Sabbath, "'will you not take hold of it? "'Lift it out?' "'Is it just common sense? "'How much more valuable is a person than a sheep? "'Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath.' "'And he said to the man, "'Stretch out your hand.' "'He stretched it out. "'It was completely restored.' Just as sound as the other. And the story goes on. All I want to point out to you is right after Jesus' famous invitation to a life that is grounded in rest, the autobiographer or the biographer Matthew immediately tells two stories about the Sabbath. That's deliberate. That's for you to realize, oh, this is how we enter into the Sabbath, into the rest that Jesus has for our souls, and oh, this is how a lot of people mess up that very rest. Sabbath has got to be one of the most ancient, the most misunderstood, and the most important of all of the practices from the way of Jesus. For those of you that are unfamiliar with it, which is, again, for most modern Westerners, most of us, the word Sabbath is from the Hebrew Shabbat. Can you say that? Shabbat. Shabbat. And the word literally means to stop. That's all it means. The Sabbath is the stop day. It's a day to stop. Stop working. Stop thinking about working. Stop wanting. Stop worrying. Just stop and rest. Sometimes, you know, a picture is worth a thousand words, and hopefully they're up there. I can't see anything. But think of the pictures that come to us through lifestyle advertising, whether it's for bed pillows or a new bath probe, you know, bathrobe or a throw for your couch or a rug or a serving platter for wine and cheese or whatever it is. Have you ever noticed that almost every single image in pretty much every magazine on your coffee table is an image of stopping? of Sabbath. These are all images of Sabbath. Now the irony, of course, is that the marketing department of a Kinfolk magazine or a Snowy or Blue Dot or wherever you shop for furniture and such here knows that you ache for a life of rest and you don't have it. (laughs) And so they are tapping into your restlessness but the irony is in order to get that life that we crave none of you need a terry cloth bathrobe for 99 pounds or whatever like you don't need to buy this new kind of wash towel you don't need to buy a scented candle with essential oils and herbs and eucalyptus or you don't like it's all great stuff you don't need to spend a penny to get this life all you have to do is stop But Sabbath is about more than just stopping to have breakfast in bed and read the paper or whatever it is. It's a holy day. The first line in all of the Bible where that word holy is used is actually of the Sabbath. God blessed the Sabbath day and he made it holy. In Hebrew it's the word kadash and it can be translated other or separate or a number of people argue that a valid translation of holy is weird. Right? That's why some of you are really holy people. I just We bless you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. But the Sabbath, it's a kadosh day. It's a weird day. It's a different day. It's a separate day. It's a holy day. It's different from the other six days of the week. In the Torah, for something to be kadosh or to be holy, it means that it is set apart for and dedicated to God. So it's not just used for moral things, it's used for things like a pitcher of water that is holy means it's a pitcher that was only used for a ceremony at the temple. And the same with the Sabbath. There are other days that are out there that are great and beautiful and good, but the Sabbath is a day that's kadosh, that's holy, that is set apart for and dedicated to God, meaning it's not just a day to rest and chill and sleep in and catch up on laundry or binge watch Netflix. It's an entire day set aside just to rest your soul in God. Very few of us get this. I don't know about, again, I don't know your country as well as my own. I know in America we get the concept of a day off, but we don't get the concept of a Sabbath. We get entertainment and relaxation and fun and play. We don't get rest, not at a deep level. And Sabbath is a practice or a spiritual discipline by which we cultivate a spirit of restfulness all week long, not just on one day of the week. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 4. We'll end here this morning. Hebrews chapter 4. Um, you know, I don't normally read from Hebrews, though I, I love it just because it's, it's very hard to understand if you're not a first-century Jew, all sorts of kind of Hebrew language in it. But let me just read to you a short excerpt. And there's some stuff in here that will sound a little weird to you or won't make sense, and it's just a little bit outside of our purview. So just let that re- rest and just read this with me. Chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, the author says, since the promise of entering his rest still stands... Right? This is all playing off Jesus' language. Come to me, rest for your souls. That's a promise. You, this is a, a possibility and a promise for all of you. Since it still stands, let us be careful, listen, that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. Meaning, have, ha, meaning you've been invited into this rest for your souls, and yet you're not living in it. This is just not your normal. For we also have had the good news proclaimed to us, just as they did, but the message they heard was of no value to them, because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. Now we who have believed enter that rest, just as God has said, I declare it on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. It's from a psalm. And yet his works have been finished since the creation of the world, for somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words, quote, on the seventh day God rested from all his works, that's Genesis chapter 1. And then I'm sorry, chapter 2. And then again in the passage above, he says, they shall never enter my rest. Therefore, verse 6, since it remains for some to enter that rest. Some of you here have yet to enter the rest of Jesus. And since those who formerly had the good news proclaimed to them did not go in because of their disobedience, God again set a certain day calling it today. This was when a long time later he spoke through David, as in the passage already quoted. If you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. And then here's my line, not my line, the line I wanted you to read. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works just as God did from his. And then notice the irony of this next line. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest can be translated strive and labor and work your tail off to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. There's a lot going on here, I don't have time. The writer of Hebrews is just a, 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 a biblical nerd and beautiful mind, and he's tying together the story of Sabbath from Genesis chapter two with the story of the promised land in Exodus and all using Psalm 95, and, and there's a lot there I don't, we don't have time for, but he's just there to make the point that Sabbath is more than just a day. Now, now, it's not less than just a day. People um, go really south with this passage in particular, and they allegorize the Sabbath. Not a good idea. Like, as a general rule, beware when people literalize the allegorical or allegorize the literal when it comes to the Bible. And so it's not less than a day. Sabbath isn't, like, just an idea. It is an actual 24-hour time period. But what he's saying is that it's far more than that. It is a way of being in the world a way of living not from adrenaline or ambition, but from abiding, where your default setting, where you draw your energy from is a restful connection to the Father's presence all week long, not just on the seventh. It is a spirit of restfulness that we live in inside a culture of restlessness. You could frame it like this, Restfulness is margin in a culture of busyness. It's slowness in a time of hurry. It's quiet over noise. It's deep relationships, soul friendships over just isolation and individualism. It's time alone over crowds. It's delight over distraction. It's enjoyment, like real savor the moment over envy. Oh, I want what that person has. I want that person's life. It's clarity, a sense of this is who I am and what my life is about. I'm at peace with that, and I step forward one day at a time over the confusion that most of us live in. It's gratitude, Ah, thank you, over greed, I want more. It's contentment, ah, my life is enough, over discontentment. It's working from love, like I'm love, therefore let me do this, rather than for love, for self-worth, for an identity to prove yourself or your worth. It's work as contribution, like this is just what I have to offer the world in love, over against work as accomplishment and accumulation. And at its core, it is a life rooted in trust in God rather than one in anxiety, now, which list best describes you? And no guilt, I'm not here to import guilt and shame from America, all right? But um, if, if you resonate far more with the second one, don't feel bad at all, you are not alone. That is, the, that is the default setting for most in our culture. Our human nature and our cultural moment are a virtual conspiracy against a spirit of restfulness. I love this from Ronald Rollheiser. We are a restless people. Restlessness is the opposite of being restful. Restfulness is one of the most primal cravings humans have. We crave rest to the point where we identify it with heaven. Grant us eternal rest. God, let me die so I can finally have a day off. Today, as our lives grow more pressured, as we grow more tired, as we begin to feel burned out, we fantasize more about restfulness we imagine a peaceful, quiet place, we see ourselves walking by a lake, watching a peaceful sunset, smoking a pipe in a rocker by the fireplace. Those are all nice British images right there. But even in those images, we make restfulness yet another activity, something we do and then we return to normal life. So restfulness for us is always somewhere else where there's more sunshine and no email and no responsibility. True restfulness, though, is a form of awareness, I love this line, a way of being in life. It is living ordinary life with a sense of ease, gratitude, appreciation, peace, and prayer. We are restful when ordinary life is enough. When ordinary life is enough, not the fantasy life that we all have, ordinary life. Ordinary life. Not when I get to the promotion, not when my kids are older, not when I finally have a spouse, not when I finally don't have a spouse, not when whatever it is for you, whatever your fantasy, like not in the future, not in another life, not in another body, not in another relational status, not in another, not when the problem is solved because there'll just be 10 more to take its place. When our ordinary life, our actual life, our wake up in the morning and this is my life, this is my job. Okay, this is my body. This is my autobiography. This is my family. This is my marriage. This is my singleness. This is my ordinary life, and it's enough, and it's even good when I'm with God. No matter how hard your life is, I guarantee you it's full of goodness. The goodness of God is in your actual life, no matter how hard it is. And then notice the irony, as we said, we are to make every effort to enter that, that rest, that wake up tomorrow morning, I'm good. Ironically, many people don't Sabbath, and as a result, don't live a life of rest because they are too lazy, because it's a lot of work, takes a lot of work to Sabbath like it takes it takes a lot of planning at least at my house and probably turn all of our phones off all of our devices off we do zero shopping zero work all that. and so that's actually a lot of work it turns out the day before the sabbath is quite stressful <laughs> um, there's a lot of things to do a lot of prep for it and and then at a deeper level to live where ordinary life is enough wow most of us aren't don't we're not it's not like a, we flip a switch like okay cool I'll just be content now like, if it was that easy, first off, I'd be out of a job and you wouldn't be here. We'd just, like, all be happy and fine. But there's a lot of work that has to be done. But there is a, because there is a discipline to Sabbath and to life with Jesus that is hard for a lot of us. But Sabbath is the primary spiritual discipline by which we cultivate a spirit of restfulness in our life as a whole. It's like Sabbath. Is to a spirit of restfulness what practice is to a game and sports or band rehearsal is to a show? It's how, how we practice, how we rehearse, how we get ready in order to incorporate this spirit all week long. Walter Brueggemann had that great line, people who keep Sabbath live all seven days differently. Now, I'm, I'm out of time. Um, for those of you who want to begin this practice of Sabbath, all you really need to do is start. Or should I say stop? I'm not sure. Um, But start, stop. Uh, Back home, myself and Colin, who's with me, and our team put together some resources at a little website, practicingtheway.org. You can go there. We have all sorts of teaching there. We have all sorts of resources. We have a six-week practice designed for a small group or home community go through or go through it by yourself. All of that is available for you. But the basic idea is pretty simple. There's a lot of ninja stuff on there if you want to get into it. But the basic idea is pretty simple. You just pick a day. For most of you, Sunday is the best day. Not all, but for most of you. And you just come to rest. Turn everything off. Let your mind, let your body go through these spirits of rest. Traditionally, there are um, 10 or so acts, not things to do, but just kind of practices that make up the Sabbath. The lighting of candles, prayers of blessing over your children and family, feasting, well, that sounds fantastic, reading of scripture or poetry or spirituality, singing, lovemaking. Some of you are like, all right, I'm into the Sabbath now. <laughs> Honey, we're Sabbathing this week. Um, <laughs> Walking, napping, or in Yiddish, the Sabbath schluff, the Sabbath nap. I like that. I, t- I take a, a Sabbath schlup every single Saturday afternoon. A nap is a great way to put your trust in God. It's a declaration of faith and the faithfulness of the Trinity, right? Time with family and close friends and time alone in the quiet and above all, gratitude. Those are just some of the things that make up a life of Sabbath. Notice what's not on that list. Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, the internet, shopping, binge watching Netflix, running errands, laundry, answering email, catching up on to-dos, going out, seeing basically a typical day off. Again, not that those things are bad at all, but they're not rest. And so for those of you, as we end, that are on the fence, you know, I would just ask, I would just encourage you to ask yourself honestly, how am I? How is my soul, not just my body, not just my mind, not just my career, how is my soul? Do I feel like I could just live this way for another 50 years and flourish and thrive? Do I feel present to the moment? John and I were with somebody a few days ago, and he said, the primary metric by which I judge how I'm doing with Jesus is how present I am to my actual life, not just to God, but to the people in front of me. Like, that is not a bad rubric to live by. How present are you? How's your soul? Does life to the full accurately describe your experience of following Jesus? Or does it sound like a pipe dream? And if the answer is no, then I would just encourage you to practice the Sabbath. And more than that, encourage you to stop striving And just labor to enter into his rest. I want this so badly for you. I want it for Johnny and Amy. I want it for me and our community back home. I grew up in a church tradition that literally said nothing about the Sabbath. Like, nothing. It was just not on my radar. I knew it was one of the Ten Commandments, but for some reason it was the one one that we didn't obey anymore. In fact, it was the one that we bragged about breaking. Like, I didn't know anybody that bragged about murder or adultery, but everybody was like, I just worked seven days in a row for Jesus, and I worked 80 hours a week, and I have 300 emails. People, we'd brag about breaking this one of the Ten Commandments, and we claimed that we were free from it, because of Jesus, I mean, like the, the theology, and that was just ridiculous. But it just wasn't on my radar. I thought it was like for Jews and old people or something. I didn't really know. I had, literally had no concept of the Sabbath. I mean, Sunday I got that. Like church was a big deal in my family, but um, but beyond that, but it wasn't a, a, a Sabbath. And you know, like you guys, we planted a church, and man, just a few years in, church planting is so fun and so exhausting. And any of you in the core team, you're all like nodding right now. Everybody else is like, no, it's not. That's because you're not very involved. Um, and uh, <laughs> you should sign up and volunteer, right? But if you're Johnny or Amy or any of their or George, or any of their key, key leaders, it's such a fun time, but man, it's exhausting. And so I just got a few years in and I just crashed and burned. It was a, to- I was a total failure at an emotional level and that was my introduction through my great ache to the practice of sabbath and we began just in fits and starts and it took my lovely wife a few years before she was on board and now all she wants to do is sabbath but um <laughs> but it took a f- it just took us a few years to get under our feet. we had no tr- we had it's a practice it's an art form it's like piano or whatever. You don't just like sit down all of a sudden play amazingly. If you're going to practice Sabbath for the first time this week, just to warn you, you, might go horrible. You know what I mean? But it's not because it's bad. It's because you are. Um, it's because... No, I'm kidding. It's because it's such a foreign art form. We're, a lot of, we're bad at rest. We're bad at doing nothing. How do you be bad at doing nothing? Most of us are, right? But we began to practice this and It began to just work its way into our body and it became the anchor point both emotionally and spiritually of our week and of our family and of our prayer life and of our prophetic imagination. And it literally has become the most important spiritual discipline in my life with Jesus and the anchor point for our family as a whole. We um, Sabbath Friday night through Saturday night because Sunday for us is a very long work day. And we sit down on Friday night, and we make this huge dinner. My wife normally makes fresh-made bread, and we just sit. We just feast. We just eat our way through the Sabbath. It's amazing. I think Jesus was down with that, and he did the same thing. So we followed Jesus into overeating all Sabbath long. <laughs> And um, we do this thing after dinner, we we'd make a giant cookie. We have this huge cast iron pan and we make a whole batch of cookies, but we just stick it all in the pan and then it comes out and it's literally the cookies like this big. And then as if that wasn't enough, we dump a whole bin of ice cream on the top and then we just all go around and we eat together as a family and our poor guests, it's like all the germs. We're like, welcome, yeah, this is how we eat. <laughs> it. And we eat our cookie and it's so fun and we do highlight of the week we just go around and say what the highlight of the week was. And I feel like I'm a broken record. Nine times out of 10, it's just the highlight of the week is Sabbath, like this is the highlight of my week. This cookie, this moment, this place, this fireplace in winter, this back deck in summer, this is my, something really good has to happen to beat out the Sabbath. And I I say that because it's become really the most important day of my week. It's the day that I look forward to on Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday, the day that I that I live in reminiscence of on Sunday, and Monday, and Tuesday. I find myself later in the week thinking, I can make it through because it's almost the Sabbath. And I find myself on the first few days of the week saying, this is good because I'm rested. It's become the way that my primary access to Jesus, his love, and his rest for my soul. And that's just a long way of saying, I want that for you, I want that for your leaders, I I think we all want at a deep level a spirit of restfulness and a practice to cultivate it all. And so Jesus invites you. Many people said no to Jesus' invitations. In fact, few of the people that were there said yes. But those that said yes were transformed as they entered into the rest that Jesus has. And the same is true for you. Let's stand together and pray.